this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Mark, you ready to do this, brother? I am, man. I'm looking forward to this subject. I know I said that last time, but I don't know. I'm having fun, and I, I feel like we keep coming up with topics that I get excited to talk about. Which is good. We have so many things going on in our <laughs> tanks. You know, I'm just about to like. You just got your A500Xs. You're freaking in love with them. I'm just about to mount mine higher, and like, there's so many tank things that we could talk about. But more than any other topic, I feel like this is such an important one to air out and that's talking about the flaws uh in our imperfect reef tanks i I don't know why i've been so excited to talk about how much my tanks suck (laughs) (laughs) they don't suck but like they're just they're not perfect yeah i've never almost never had a perfect reef tank yeah I, i feel like people used to uh talk more about their problems so that they could crowdsource how to fix them. Obviously, that still happens on forums. But now you also have like these experts and celebrity reef keepers. And I think they start to paint this picture of like this, you know, that they don't have the same challenges as everybody else. And I think it's fun to just sit here and confess a little bit about all the shit that we, excuse my language, all the crap we have to deal with with our tanks. Uh, and and that is just a constant journey, right? It's a constant struggle. <laughs> All right, you ready to jump into the session? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so if you're new to the channel, I am Jake Adams. You are listening to a brand new session of Reef Therapy, and I'm joined by my good friend. Mark Vanderwall. I've got such a long name, it takes me forever to say it. <laughs> I, I think it's catchy, actually. Oh, cool. I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're we're going to talk about all the the little imperfections and uh, the little problems that come up in reef tanks and i think i'd like to start it off by saying that i have felt this i have felt this i have grown the sentiment um around social media facebook instagram whatever your you know flavor is that there's a lot of dishonesty even more so a lot more than other hobbies or pastimes when it comes to reef tanks because you're not going to get the likes if you show a tank with, with algae you know if you confess to like you know i got a little cyano in the corner or my fish has a little bit of ick once in a while you know you get the likes when your tank looks supernatural and this is a feeling that i've, I've been growing inside of me for a long time but it was actually um, maybe earlier this year, I came across an article by Reef Builders UK editor Jeremy Gay, who, like back in 2019, he grew, he drew a really great um, analogy between the current state of presentation of reef aquariums on social media and beauty magazine covers, right? Because those are all fake. Right? There's all airbrushing and photoshopping and makeup and supermodels. And our reef tanks, just, they just, they're just not that way, man. They're just not that way. Yeah, I mean, 
there's a there's a lot of good documentaries on social media now that I think a lot of the topics you can apply to reef keeping, especially since a lot of our online consumption of the hobby now is through Facebook and Instagram, right? And I think everyone can relate that um, when things like Facebook and stuff first started, people would post their ups and downs on it because <clears throat> mm-hmm. also the number of friends you would have was much smaller. Uh, your reach, you know, wasn't really uh, that big. But over time, people started to always present this perfect side of themselves and don't, don't you know, take pictures of the bad times. But the effect was that everyone's watching you on social media and they think your life is perfect. And then they start to feel bad about their own life because their own life isn't as perfect as the one, you know, of you always on the beach or whatever. And um, we all know now that 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 is not truth. That's not an accurate representation I, of that person's life, I'm not life, convinced right? that we all know. And maybe we consciously know, but our subconscious still... I had to unfollow several coral vendors who made me feel shitty about my reef tanks. <laughs> Because they had such, you know, optimized camera settings on uh, in their photographs, and they were taking pictures with like a yellow orange filter under blue light, and I'm like, man, those colors are freaking crazy! Wow! Like every time I'd be like, oh my god! And then, I, even though I know this, like I have to remind myself of mm. this that what I'm seeing is highly manipulated presentation of reef tanks and aquarium corals and when i walk over my corals set the light just to blue put on some orange glasses whoa you know my corals look amazing they look incredible yeah but when we see these pictures over and over even if we instinctively know that those are highly manicured presentations of corals and reef tanks man it starts to sink in and there's several you know social media accounts that I had to unfollow because they made me feel bad about my retakes, even though I know all this stuff. Well, what was the quote in that article about beauty magazines? Um, um, little girls should not read beauty, beauty some, magazines. No, something about don't read beauty magazines because they'll only make you feel ugly. Yeah. Um, yeah. This was really an issue with self-esteem regarding you know uh, younger girls that were growing up and seeing these images of you know um, idealized beauty standards and there is a one-to-one translation from beauty magazines and self-esteem of you know the body image and today with social media and your self-esteem and your enjoyment of your own reef tank yeah, I mean, not to veer uh, off topic, but a good analogy for me was, and I think some people out there with like young kids can relate when you have a baby and you go into the you know initial throes of parenthood, you know, and your kid's not sleeping and you're struggling and, you know, you always had that one friend that, um, you know, you'd go talk to and they're like, oh, no, our kid's perfect. Everything's perfect, you know, and, and then you would feel so crappy like, oh, maybe I'm a horrible parent. And then, then there would be cracks in the veneer where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I was cranky, I didn't get much sleep last night. Oh, why not? You know. And then you start to realize like some people are not into airing their dirty laundry, and so they, it's like almost not even on Pinterest or social media or uh, sorry Instagram. It's like even in person, some people like this is how they function is they always put their best out there, right? Mm-hmm. And 
And for someone like me who Fake likes it till to, you make it. Yeah, and for me, like I like to vent about, you know, hey man, I'm really struggling because that's what friends are for, right? Uh, but um, it's I feel like it's the same in the reef keeping now, especially when most of your interactions with other hobbyists is online, right? It's not so much in person, at least not for me as much anymore. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I get it, man. I I had that feeling just this week where I was on Instagram and it's like all these close-up shots of these perfect little beautiful corals that have crazy names and um, every photo is like a, a photo shoot of the reef tank. You know, it's not just somebody pulling out an iPhone and taking a quick picture of their tank and you start to have doubt about your own tank or, you know, questioning, uh, you know, what, what, what are they doing? What are their tips and tricks? Like, and you start to hammer these people, you see these comments like, well, what are you doing? What do you feed your corals? And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it can be discouraging. I think I've been creating original reef aquarium content. I mean, since I was in college, so like, let's just call it 15 years. I've been professional at reef builders since 2008 and it's it's actually really natural to want to clean the glass and scrape out some algae and present the aquarium as as nicely as it can right like i don't want to crystallize a moment and my aquarium is looking mediocre i want sure, to show, yeah. you know put the best, best foot forward um but more recently i've really become cognizant of this you know do dichotomy between trying to present the tank as as beautiful as possible so if people are inspired and people say wow jake your tank looks so great but i'm i'm making more concerted efforts to actually show in my mostly in my videos like hey you know what i got some aptasia over here i got a little bit of alonia i got a little bit of algae it's not it's not the end of the world yeah yeah i think too the other side of it is that you <clears throat> we always uh we always latch onto these reef keeping demagogues, right? These experts uh, over time. And, and those have come and gone. I mean, you and I have seen our fair share of them. And the other side of the coin is like, as soon as somebody is considered some expert and uh, a go-to person, I also think a lot of those people back off on airing their own dirty laundry, right? Or their own problems because they're out there giving advice to people and they don't want to come off as like, oh, well, I got ick in my tank, you know, and <laughs> um, but it's the other it's 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 like two extremes, right? Because I don't want to trust somebody who's going to give me advice when I don't have any concrete evidence that they're keeping a reef tank. And we had those type of personalities in the hobby quite a bit, too, where you got these people giving advice, to everybody. And yet I've never seen a picture of the reef tank, but somehow we all declared that person to be uh uh, expert and deserving of attention but on the flip side you know if i do see pictures of your tank it's you know i i do like i do like those experts that um talk about failure right and talk about mm -hmm. experiments that have gone wrong uh more so than somebody that's just always preaching and never talks about the things that are wrong with their own tank either i so. mean I'll, i mean i'll confess like i mean i'll talk to you about having some issues and experiencing some losses but my way of coping with um setbacks in my aquariums is to bury that like a man <laughs> put it in the box <laughs> don't mention it just move on not act like it never happened like internally like i learned from the experience but it's painful to yeah. talk about the you know the fish that i've lost um or the you know corals that i've had issues with um 
but yeah, you know, I have a, a small list of like almost every every problem and issue that people think are the end of their reef tank and that they're not. Um, so do you have any that you want to start with? Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> for me, I mean, the I think this one's on the top of your list too, but uh, uh, well, so for me, the big ones are obviously fish diseases and, and algae management. Um, and uh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's take those one at a time. Sure, Let's yeah. talk Pick about one. probably one of the biggest in the reef aquarium hobby. And I would say that's cyanobacteria. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, I think that people who have never gone on a diving on a reef don't realize that there's always some place on the reef where detritus builds up, you know, kind of concentrating nutrients in one spot and there's little patches of cyano yeah it's always funny to see those turfs they're almost a little more turfy at times too uh will get the thick and become kind of a biofilm and they might have filaments kind of coming off but uh, i have never lost a coral to cyano i have cyano in i don't know a handful of my tanks i got two tanks that you know they're kind of prone to it strangely they're bluer lighting tanks um and it's like my LPS tank and my Euphilia Aquarium. Man, they have some pretty persistent patches of cyano. Then they're in, in line with several other displays that never d display it. But thankfully, these are also bluer tanks, so I don't really have to perceive the redness of the cyano nearly as much. I blast it off, let the um, uh, you know, mechanical filtration take care of it, and I, I think nothing of it. I, w I don't think I would ever use a cyanobacteria treatment on an aquarium ever again so i'm going to disagree with you on that one yeah so i have used uh cyano treatments in the past um only when it's gotten so i've had it go out of control a few times where describe what that's like out of control to the point what, what that was the metric where you're like okay i need to do something to the point that it's not only coating the sand, but the rocks and you're starting to choke out some of your corals. Um, that has happened to me a few times uh, when my, uh, I guess you could say just my water quality and my nutrients were so out of whack, right? That um, uh, usually when I've been neglectful and let my nutrients bottom out. Um, but I... Um, your mileage might vary, but it, you know, so don't, don't heed my advice, but I just never had a bad experience with like a chemicaline. Sure. Um, no, me I, either. It's, and, uh, for, so for me, it's just a, a, a treatment to get rid of, uh, a cyano that I find annoying. It's not the end of the world that I have cyano, um, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do it. And then it's gone. I had a time in my reef keeping tenure that it would always show up in like the spring, and okay. it was almost like when I would open up the windows and, you know, the Georgia pollen was taken over. Like I, I had, I mean, I think, uh, I think I brought this up years ago where I almost started, I was convinced that it was a result of just spring, like something in the air or whatever. Um, I think a lot of reefers would resonate with that statement. It's, uh, and I can't, you know, I'm, I can't prove that, but it was just a weird, just every spring I'd get a cyano outbreak. And then I just got to the point where instead of battling it slowly, I just kept it cleaned and move on to, you know, with my life. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point. You know, there's, there's very few dangers in treating 
cyanobacteria with some kind of red slime remover appropriately, right? It gets to a certain level and you know what you need to do to your tank to prevent its growth, but you know, you use, you know, something like ChemiClean to just kill it. <laughs> to just yeah, kill it and all. don't go into it blindly, right? Remove yeah, as much yeah. as you can before and aerate the hell out of your tank while you do it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, uh, there's with with treatments, there's um there's no free lunch. Right, right. <laughs> there's definitely no free lunch. But if you have little patches of cyanobacteria that are persistent but also contained. Oh yeah, that's it's literally nothing to be concerned about. No. I just consider it kind of part of the ecosystem when it's like that. It's only when it's gone just bat crazy, you know, then I'm like, all right. Um, well, maybe you shouldn't have sand. <laughs> I, I would say sand. that's a function uh, somewhat uh, of having a sand bed because you have those nutrients and, you know, maybe like an anoxic layer where uh, the nitrogen-fixing cyanobacteria really appreciate that. Um, but it's funny, like, the only tanks that I have cyano in are the ones where I'm trying to really discreetly, you know, try to introduce a lot of water flow, but it's not nearly as blasty as I would like. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, man, I, I mean, every couple months I'll get in there and just kind of, you know, use a big baster, blast it off, and it takes a long time to come back. Like, I know it's going to come back. But since these are very blue light tanks, cyanobacteria is causing exactly zero harm to your reef tank until it starts, you know, kind of growing on some zoanthids or, you know, encroaching on corals. But otherwise, red slime algae is is nothing to be ashamed of or really concerned about uh, except for the unsightly factor right yeah you know i another thing you and i do differently is a refugium right or uh, a macro algae filter right Um, (laughs) but i always have cyano in my uh in that part of my sump right and uh it usually doesn't make its way into my main display uh, as long as i'm keeping things where they need to be but it just kind of etches out a little living down there and all right so here's an interesting offshoot all right i have been battling to keep my nutrients up and that's something that's just so foreign to almost like a a lifetime of trying to keep nutrients low and so very i've dabbled in dosing nitrates and then i started feeding my fish more but that resulted in a lot more detritus and fecal matter and just more protein skimming and believe it or not like dosing nitrate is a clean form of nutrients right there's nothing to break down it's not going to affect your orp it's not going to bottom out your ph i started dosing so i have a you know my spinning ketomorpha chamber and back to you know the whole putting the the best foot forward like i've never really showed off how slimy that thing used to get very recently as i started dosing nitrate on purpose I don't, I, I, I still can't, I'm having, I'm struggling to connect the dots, but the, there's still algae that grows in there, but it's none of the slimy type. It was never cyanobacteria. It was more dino style, but I don't have dinos in any of my tanks and it would only happen there. But since I've increased my nitrates and started dosing nitrates and you were, you know, I'm kind of boosted with uh, some iron and manganese. It's like normal, just fuzzy algae. I, I'm still like trying to figure out what happened there, but I, I believe it's just a you know a nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium balance that has switched to prefer non-slimy forms of algae. And now that I'm really aggressively trying to keep my nitrates at one ppm, um, I don't have that slime anymore. That's how, cool. how, how, how neat is that? Yeah, I, I did 
experiment with the potassium nitrate dosing when I had a <clears throat> I, another confession. I had a horrible bout with dinos, right? And uh, mm. they just wouldn't you go away. You already confessed it, though. You told yeah. everybody, you know, it's one thing that worked for you. But go ahead. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see. I saw a lot of positive responses to dosing nitrates. It's not, I don't do it anymore um, just because there's nothing for me to fix at this moment. If I have to, again, I will. Um, but, you know, um, I, it, that being kind of a softy coral nut for now, uh, it was interesting to see, like, even the soft corals respond better, right, which I, I was curious about. But there was definitely a correlation to dosing and just their general expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, for me, it's the one mystery I can't figure out, and I probably wouldn't be able to replicate it, and somebody listening here won't be able to replicate it and think I'm full of it, but... Keeping my tank at 82 degrees has somehow made it very inhospitable for cyano and dinos to go nuts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my turf algae is like loving it, which is great because that's what my tanks like to eat. So I live at a high elevation in Colorado. My tanks, I mean, a seasonal high is going to be like 77. Like that's yeah. high. I mean, there's it's super constant, but about 75 to 77. And um, you had made the connection that there's um, probably a correlation between the reef aquarium hobby having much more efficient reef aquarium equipment. We don't have to use like oversized mag drives or blue line pumps or Iwaki pumps and metal halides or T5s that in, you know, they injected a, a lot of heat to the reef aquarium system. And, you know, historically my reef tanks would have run closer to 78 to 80. And um, now they run closer to 75. Thankfully I don't have dino problems, but I had the same experience in my fish aquarium where it was running seven, like 75, 77, 76 or so uh, for a long time. And then I put a, like a, a total cover over it, just made a, a lid out of um, um, greenhouse siding, you know, green, green site, greenhouse wall siding. And um, it's, you know, the, te- the temperature now, even the, the, the heaters never kicked on. <laughs> I'm about to take that thing off. And the, the fish tank runs at a solid 80 degrees. And I used to have to wipe down the, the tank every two, you know, twice a week, you know, and it was more like a diatom style bloom. And, but it was really unsightly, uh, not so much on the glass, but on all the decorations on the bottom. And after I would say a few weeks to a month of running at 80 degrees, all of a sudden I realized like, man, I, I don't have to wipe down my fish tank nearly as often. Um, it's, it's now it's like, all right, it'll have a small film cause it doesn't have that much light and I'll wipe it down every two weeks. So there's there's a there's a great correlation um, there between some of our algaes or the things that we battle um, on our reef tanks and the temperature. Um, but I do want to keep it more on the, the the flaws and imperfections that people stress over. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can talk about just let's talk about wiping the tank less. Nobody talks about this. I, is there one article about wiping tank a reef aquarium tank glass? Has anyone ever like described how often they have to wipe down their tanks and what they do and what they're seeing? Well, if you see some of these pictures online, you, you know you have to admit owning a tank. You go, man, that, there's a lot of work keeping a tank that spotless for the back wall, the corners, everything's perfect. In some of these pictures, I'm like, man, um, that's uh, that's some OCD level work there. Like props. I mean, that's. Um, but yeah, I mean, I. I don't know. I uh, I'm I'm pretty bad about it. I 
Well, I, how often I, do you have to wipe down your, t- or how often do you feel compelled to wipe down your reef aquarium glass? I do it about twice a week. Yeah, same here. Same here, twice a week. I could easily let it go a week, but you know, I have high clarity glass, unlike you. And uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's not a knock. Um, but yeah, about twice a week, I'm wiping down the glass. I have, you know, mix, mix and matched uh, algae magnets that makes it really, you know, uh, easy. Um, you know, I can easily just put on a podcast and in about 30 minutes, you know, I'll wipe down about. 50 feet of reef tanks that's because i have two peninsula tanks right so six foot side then a two foot side then a six foot side times two plus all the other displays and it it, you know what it's actually um cathartic it's Mm -hmm. it's actually a really relaxing part of my reef aquarium maintenance routine um but we're talking about the diatoms you know and i'm not using any kind of phosphate remover i have noticed that when i use phosphate remover i might get away with you know about once a week um, and then there'll be some tougher allergies that usually, you know, on the edges and towards the top when I'm trying not to splash because I have that, you know, my tank almost filled the rim, unlike your tank, which has all that room to splash around. Um, about once a month, I'll, I'll use um, either like a, a manual scraper or a really heavy duty uh, blade, uh, yeah. bladed magnet to get the rest. About once a month, I'll, I'll get, um, you know, the corners and the edges really well. Yeah, for me. So one thing I like about being a little bit lazy about it at times is um, I've got all these canary in the coal mine things that, because I'm not a big tester, that I mm. sort of just use to gauge that my tank is where it's got to be, right? One of them is uh, Montiparas are great canaries because... For? For, well, for me, it could be anything from magnesium to Magnesium. Alk. Magnesium is the one. Anytime somebody has troubles with monopore, I'm like, check your magnesium levels. To me, they're they're like the best indicator of low magnesium levels. But even if if you're like if you're do- if you forgot to refill your your two part solution, right? Like the first guy to let you know that you're slacking on that is your Montipera. But what's great about a Montipera for me, and again, your mileage mileage might vary. They can look off without truly like RTNing or dying on right. you. Right. So you're kind of like, oh, shoot, I got to check out what's going on. Whereas, you know, by the time your acro is like letting you know, it's, it's, it's not good. Okay. Um, but, but glass, uh, film algae on the glass for me tells me that I've got some phosphates and some nitrates, which for me personally is a good thing because. Not nitrates. I've tested the waters in my 600-gallon system, and I I did the same thing, bro. I'll let you finish. But I did the same thing. I used the algae on the glass as an indicator of nutrients, and I always assumed, oh, yeah, you know, got to have some phosphate, you got to have some nitrate. Um, But when the HANA low-range nitrate checker came out, my 600-gallon system was 0.00. Jeez. I know I, I could I couldn't believe it. I did the test a couple times. I'm like, how is this possible? And it's not that I don't have nitrates because I'm always feeding, but it's just getting so tight and cycled so quickly. And I same assumption. I made the same assumption that all right, if I have a, a, a decent or you know normal amount of, of algae growing on the glass, that's going to be a reflection of my nutrients. But I think um, the nitrates get used up so fast that it, it's still a good indicator of the phosphates. Yeah, if I because I. You know, you get a little cloudy looking through the front of it, but I'll look through the side of it. Mm. And if if that dusting has kind of a slightly green tint, um, to me, that means the right kind of algae is thriving. And I'm as not... As opposed to brown? 
as opposed to dinos and cyano. Like mm. it's there seems to be at least in my tanks a direct correlation between having that greenish film on there and also having some turfs in your overflow box or in your sump that you know where your tangs and your urchins aren't able to hit it. Um, if I see those things growing, then I'm like, okay, this tank is 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 geared to give those type of algaes the competitive advantage versus the ones that love the primordial soup that loves when all your uh, nitrate phosphate levels are bottomed out and out of whack. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that that's just me. You know, I I, uh, I think if you try to eliminate algae, like algae elimination is not a thing. It's, it isn't. It's I, more about... I really about, want to stress that. Yeah, it's it's shifting the competitive advantage to the kind of algae that you f- that you are more easily able to manage with or, or uh, none huh <laughs> or none or i mean eventually you get enough corals in there yeah but i mean i valonia like this i think valonia could live uh in in a tank full of chlorine or something i don't know it's like valonia just shows up no matter All what right. so we, we we've talked about algae on the glass yeah um i think there's enough information there about turf algaes um, Enteromorpha, Bryopsis, yeah. Derbesia. I don't think that's as common as a problem as it used to be. Um, not really. You know, back in the day, like hair algae was the big nemesis, and you don't you don't really see that so much. Like I don't see it. I don't, dude. I couldn't even point out a patch of of hair algae in almost all my tanks, except for my nano. But that one's you know kind of like. That's a tank I've let go for a long time and just kind of let it do its thing and make small adjustments. So, so there's some, some hair algae in there, but uh, by and large, we, we kind of know how to manage those. But my Australian reef tank, my K90 with a bunch of scolies and lower light, oh, ho, 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 ho. man, if I turn the lights real white, you will see a nice a bubbly forest where there aren't corals. Valoni? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It's not... <clears throat> encroaching on the corals it's not kind of floating around and getting caught in pumps but i mean i've got i think i've got some valonia in all my tanks but yeah you, but it but you know the one place that it that i really have to manage it is the comb going into my overflows yeah and the back of the overflow box which are covered to prevent lighting somehow there's just enough that leaks into them that i have to kind of go back there and like remove some some bigger chunks so it's funny some of my displays oh yeah you'll never see some 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 valonia but i can point them out that was the one algae when i was into bare bottom tanks like you are um that i struggled with my 180 Man, at one point it was so bad. I had to take every rock out and just I got like a wire brush and just scrub the crap out of them. And then I would dunk them in several buckets of salt water because there was still that common held belief that if you pop one, spores go everywhere, right? Which I think has been disproven now. But has it though? Has it though? I just, I want to use a thought experiment for this. What do you think an emerald crab does? When it's, when it's eating bubble algae. It's literally popping it. Right. It's literally popping the bubble algae. There is, so I, I, I've overheard this in, in reef stores. People are like, oh, don't pop the bubble algae. I'm like, do you realize like one Valonia bubble is probably filled with like thousands of spores? Nothing you do in terms of like popping the Valonia is going to make it worse. 
No, I ever. read that they did an experiment and they started evaluating. Um, uh, I'll dig it up for you if I can All find right, well, it. Somebody. Again. Yeah, and they brought up that uh, the contents there, like there were there were no spores in the majority of the Valonia, right? And and so, um, yeah. So, but anyway, at that time, that was a common held belief. So I'm like flushing these rocks in multiple buckets before mm. it went back in the tank, but. I got I got the idea that that is a clean water, will grow anywhere kind of algae. Like it's a slow grower, right? So it's not desperate for nutrients like a mm-hmm. turf algae would be. Um, but yeah, uh, it's funny. Um, I really struggled with that algae during the bare bottom days. I guess because you know the environment wasn't really suited for some of the other more detritus-ridden problem algae. So mm-hmm. it was like, hey, I'm the top dog now, right? This environment's, I don't have to compete with all these faster growing things. But uh, yeah, that thing is, when they, I, it's weird, but now it's manageable again. Like now yeah. in my tank, I can, I've got a few here and there, but I'm not urgently trying to pop them. But man, I had it just blow up on me where it was just clusters of it everywhere. And that's, I think that's the takeaway message about Valonia is that it will flare. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not going to just keep growing on top of itself into into spires unless you really do something wrong. Um, but like I've, you know, I don't know, maybe like every six weeks or something, I'll you know manually remove some of the bigger chunks from the um, Australian style reef tank with all my scolies and bubble corals. Um, and I've got a few emerald crabs in there you know, who are helping to keep them at bay. And sometimes you can see that it's kind of dying. And other times, you know, usually after a water change, which you think would make the nutrients actually better, after a water change and an injection of, you know, new trace elements and stuff, um, that's when it seems to like it a little bit more. Have you but tried uh, razor or something like that? I have tried razor. Um, but I got some really valuable corals in that tank and some not replaceable corals. Yes. So in some other tanks I've used razor a little bit more cavalier and it just eradicated Valonia and hair algae. And, and just, we've, we've talked about this in the mm-hmm. past, just like reset the rock to the point where it just looked like f- so freaking new, like really, really cool stuff. I think we need to know and understand the product that's inside of it a little bit more yeah yeah that makes sense i mean those those aren't cheap corals you got in there yeah yeah so i've used it in my nano and i've used it in some other displays and um if you wanted to take a um a slower approach to setting up a reef tank so not like a one-day reef tank uh that i'm not promoting i'm just saying it's possible um i think a really awesome approach would be to you know set up your rock make sure it's got some infusion of life and before you add corals just you know get you know a little heavy-handed with a product like uh, like brightwell razor and just reset your rock so it's super clean and then start in- injecting the corals or in- inserting the corals because valonia can't come out of nowhere mm-hmm. right it's, if you don't introduce it you will never have it and so that's that's one thing i'm really looking forward to in the future uh, regarding all these pests and parasites and algaes that we're about to talk about is like if we could get some tissue cultured corals, bro, oh my God, I am so jealous of freshwater planted aquarium folks who have a wide selection of tissue cultured plants that have zero pests or algaes. That's a tricky one for me because I definitely subscribe to the juju that, you know, the rock that some of these corals come in on is what helps seed the tank, but it's also going to potentially seed it with things you don't want 
That's a it's a catch twenty two. Yeah, but I'll, I usually you know I, I'll err on the benefits outweigh the con kind of thing. Um, so, but yeah, I you know, and I mean that sort of rolls into disease management with me where I have done so many radical things to try to keep disease uh, fish like parasites out of my tank and then still ended up with them that eventually I just kind of got I. So, so the way people talk about ick management, I kind of feel like some, some, a lot of pests, it's just pest management. You just kind of, yeah. you know, you, you learn to live with Valonia, you know, and other things. And just it's just, it's just not the end of the world. And I just want everyone listening or watching out there to know that, man, if you got a little patch of cyano or a little bit of Valonia in one spot or, you know, small little tufts of, of hair algae, like, until it's causing a, a noticeable harm to your reef tank, like observe it, you know, be cognizant that it's there, but don't overreact. Like you're probably going to do more harm by inappropriately using some of these eradication uh, solutions than by simply, you know, either manually removing the little bits that build up or just leaving it alone. You might find that it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go, you know, grow and spread from that spot. Yeah. And, I think sometimes uh, when it comes to things like pests, it's just if it gets out of control, like just be less lazy. You know, I mean, um, uh, who is it? Uh, Joe Yayulo, is that how you say his mm-hmm. last name? Like L- Lars Lazy Ass Reefer Syndrome, right? Like, yep, yep, yep. It's like, oh, you know, I, I want to completely eradicate this thing's like or you know if like once a week you go in and poke a few bubbles and scrub the rock here and there and, and it's part of your part of your reef therapy man part of just you interacting with your reef tank like you know just do that's it. A, that's you know that's probably the prescription for most folk is is take a measured approach to so just yeah. get yourself a piece of airline or you know it's just kind of thinner tubing uh, remove some of it don't worry about popping bubbles that it's just not a thing and uh yeah, if your corals look good, like that's that's the focus, mm-hmm. right? Don't focus on the two percent or five percent of your reef tank that you think is detracting from your enjoyment, and focus on the ninety-five percent of the corals and fish that are doing excellent. Yeah, when somebody's like, "What uh, what organism can I buy to graze this algae that my fish won't eat?" It's like, you know what? Who makes a perfect grazer is you, right? Like your hands and oh. some tools. And oh my God, is that a legendary quote from Mark Vanderwall? You know what makes a perfect grazer is you. Well, because it. you're not picky, right? <laughs> you'll gra- you'll remove the algae. You'll remove cyano. You know, it's like, well, what eats cyano? It's like, well, or what? Re- you know, it's like, well, you're not going to eat it, but you can remove it. You know, you yeah. can you can be the uh, omnivore in the tank that doesn't care and just pull. If all that you crap want out. that flawless looking reef tank, bro, like I have, I have um, a few different types of dental picks. So some are sharp and some are flat-edged for removing stuff. I got bristle brushes for um, the the combs in my overflow box. Um, battle corals, um, they package a really tough but like narrow brush that is awesome for cleaning certain things, especially frag plugs. So that's the other thing that you know, like it can be part of your regular reef aquarium maintenance routine. Like if you really need to make this become <laughs> that. Um, uh, universal grazer like these tools will also really help with the process yeah yeah you know uh well it's like a garden right you can pluck all the weeds out but guess what next weekend there's more weeds yeah. to pluck. perfect analogy um 
You know what's funny, man? I was like, I don't have any green hair algaes, but you know what I, I have? I have pink hair coralline algae that grows what? in certain places. I want yes, some of that. It grows very slowly. No, you don't. And um, but it does grow in like certain bare spots between acros. It loves you know the the high mineral rich environment, and it grows within the acro. It loves the high light. It loves the high flow. It doesn't spread like crazy. It's not even visible. It almost looks like a fuzzy algae until you look closer. You're like, is that a pink coralline hair algae? <laughs> no, you don't want it. But do you remember the cotton candy algae that was oh. like ravaging reef tanks back in the day? Dude, no one even knows about it. That's anymore, what like, made Sanjay sh- like reboot his 180 and reset. I re- reset, reset, yeah. yeah. I and struggled I, with that crap. Oh my god, that's, I had. That's I think I had a purple tang who like munched on it, but he didn't like devour it. But I haven't even seen a mention of it in like um, ten years, maybe. Like I haven't even seen it. I, I don't know where to go. I where was actually trying to think of the genus name recently because it. Um, uh, when I wrote the Reef Builders thing about the dinos persisting and uh, how my little experiment temperature worked for my specific dino, I actually brought up the cotton algae, cotton candy mm-hmm. algae in that article, but I don't remember the name or the genus. But did, did, did we determine that that was a filamentous cyanobacteria? It, um, I think someone did. It, it, has, um, it had two phases, uh, is what I recall. It had a leafy phase and a cotton phase. But the leafy phase, sort of like a fern, right, that has like a sporophyte phase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember the leafy phase never manifested in our tanks. Um, I never saw that. I just saw the, the cotton style. And the only thing that I knew would eat it, uh, that in my experience, were those Mexican turbo snails, which were ah, yes, short-lived, yes, yes. Uh, you know, at higher temperatures. But um, they, they would do a number on it. But, yeah, that stuff was terrible. So, like, that's an awesome example of... If it's not around, it's not going to spread, mm-hmm. right? So if coral vendors and frag vendors, you know, or frag farmers really, really went the extra mile to eradicate Valonia, Derbesia, Enteromorpha, and Bryopsis from their systems, they wouldn't be spreading it around. And I think there's one company that I know of that, that stands by a pest-free guarantee, and it's our friend Leo Denbrigen in, in in Holland. Like such a talented reefer, he's got a you know a very small operation. He's actually expanding into a new system. I feel like he's going to be one of our rare guests to to learn about him because I he's the only other guy I talk to where him and I will discuss certain things, and it's like reef therapy over the phone. Um, but he 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 offers pest-free guarantee. And so, so yeah, a lot of these algaes, I just want people to know they're not inevitable. Cyano is. Cyano is everywhere. Nightums, <laughs> probably. But all these higher algaes, all the hair algaes, and, and Valonia, um, you can't get them from the air. You have to get them from your, from your frags. So if one thing that I do almost all the time, not always, is when I get frags from someone, man, pop that coral off the base. Sometimes, even if it's a crusted, I will literally just break it off, throw away the base, and put it on a new one so I'm not introducing new stuff. And, and one of these days, I really want to do a system that is um, almost like clinical, where it's just corals and algae and, and, and bacteria. Corals and bacteria. That's it. Um, <clears throat> I remember backpacking in the Rockies and seeing watermelon snow. It's uh, snow oh, that... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Which mm-hmm. is cyano, right? So... <laughs> 
you know, I think it came, I think the theory was like geese or something drop droppings, you know, carried whatever, but it just shows you cyanos everywhere, <laughs> you know, even on a mountainside. Um, oh, so before we move into some broader topics, I have to bitch and complain about sponges. I think, I don't know why I'm the only one who has problems with too much sponge growth. Oh, uh, see, I love sponges. I, I, I inherently love sponges and respect and appreciate them for what they are, but I don't like it when they're growing in that spot in my reef tank. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I do know that I have high silicates in my water and that's it. You know, I got two PPM coming out the tap. Silicates are really hard to remove even with a specialized membrane using RO. And I'm, it's one of those things that I'm constantly trying to scrub off sponges because even if I didn't have that high silicate level on a long enough timeline, everything becomes a pest. You know, I think bird's nest is one of those corals that grow so dense and so intricately. Like you get one tiny, I get one little tiny piece of sponge growing in the bottom. It's just a matter of time before it spreads upwards and starts killing the coral from the bottom. And, you know, you might not see it from the top for a long time, but again, on a long enough timeline, everything becomes a pest. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a lone ranger over here saying, keep those sponges out of your tank. <laughs> I, to me, <clears throat> I know the emphasis is always on coral, uh, but yeah, coral is just one component of a reef aquarium for me. Like the sponge name, name one genus of sponge. Ah. <sighs> I actually know some genuses, but now I'm drawing a blank. Um, <laughs> See, we spend all of our time talking about the corals and talking about the fish, yeah. talking about the chemistry. Yes, I love sponge. I appreciate what they are. I love little Sycon sponges that, you know, are stay small and kind of show up in your sump. But, you know, there's that one um, some somewhat photosynthetic uh, sponge. Sometimes it's red. Sometimes it's green. Sometimes it's clear. Um, that will grow kind of in your rock work on a long enough timeline. That's just like building up and, and preventing water flow through and just creating like a, a different zone in the aquarium that I don't want. Um, but you know what I have in my tanks? I call them egg sponges, right? So they're like little ball sponges and they're kind of colorless. But when you pop them, there is a rich yellow yolk inside. What? <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's really strange. I'll show them when you're here in about a month. Um, but what I have noticed with the egg sponges is if I don't remove them, they don't seem to increase in number. But when I do harvest them, then they come back. It's kind of weird. But yeah, I think I'm the only person in the world that has sponges that- Give me like, some of those too. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> Along with the coralline algae, man. You can have as many as you want. Um, so yeah, that's my one rant about sponges um, and imperfect reef tanks. Um, let's talk about vermitids. Oh. I'm pretty sure I was definitely at the front of the pack of demonizing vermitid snails. And if you don't know, vermitids are a group of snails that don't grow a shell and walk around. They settle out onto a rock and create a spiral on the rock and they release kind of a slime trail that um, will catch detritus but over a long period of time that slime trail the slime net will will irritate neighboring corals and man if left unchecked those guys can grow big and you can just have like just huge curtains of these slime trails coming from your vermitids um, but thankfully you know we're not getting as much live rock. We're not getting as much wild coral colonies. And it's getting harder to introduce those into reef tanks. And I think the most prominent vector is probably used corals and used live rock. 
For, yeah, I, I used to have a lot of problems with those, but not so much anymore. For me, the thing I used to always welcome in my early days, but now they're kind of annoying, are fanworms. They just take over all your piping and your sump, and, and they're just a pain. I have uh, small fanworms everywhere. I do. Yeah. I did introduce a copper band into my SPS system. And I'm like, oh, man, this guy's going to have a feast eating Aptasia and eating fanworms, popping a couple little bristle worms and ragworms. Oh, my God. I've actually, it's funny how copper bands are, are promoted mostly for Aptasia eradication, but I don't, dude, I don't need to eradicate all the ragworms or spaghetti worms. I don't need to eradicate all the fanworms, but just keeping the population numbers down with a yeah. copper band. Oh, my God, dude. I'm. You know what? It's funny, dude. I have been keeping reef tanks for about 25 years. This is the first copper band I've ever owned. I've never had one. Ah, see, see, there's some of these super <laughs> common fish out there. That I'm just like, no, I don't want a problem child that's going to be picky to feed when it gets bigger. Um, but uh, my wife uh, brought home a, a copper band that was uh, really heavily infested with lymphocystis. I'm like, man, I ain't, that ain't even thing. We'll get him some clean water and a lot of water flow and you know a good menu to, to graze on. Oh, high carbon. And he'll do really good. Really I just got to add, I love that your black cat is named Carbon. <laughs> yes, that was not by accident. <laughs> no, I figured. Um, yeah, so, no, yeah, Hermitids is one of those things like, oh, I, it's probably going to become part of history as we could become more aware. The last few times I've been in reef stores, I have overheard people literally asking for bumblebee snails to supposedly eradicate them or eat them i don't know if that's confirmed well now but there's I, like these super tiny ones that are because i was always used to the ones that were like a quarter inch where you could actually see or bigger yeah and now they've got these ones that are super thin and wiry and like you cut yourself on them and i've always had those i'm not sure if that's actually a vermitid yeah uh, those I, I, they're so small i haven't really examined them yeah but yes they, they poke your hands and cause a little bit of bleeding and those i have them suck. all over the yeah. place um yeah for me the the calcareous fan worms it's like you, you start to have to work on your plumbing or you pull a pump out and it just cuts you or scratches you it's just uh they're 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 a bit of a nuisance but um I, you know what's weird is uh i i mean i, I had aptasia in the early days but i Here have not I have not Yo. had an Aptasia anemone, knock on wood, in any of my reefs for. Are you lucky? I don't. I gotta say, like more than a decade. I don't. I don't remember the last time. And I, it's not like I'm being real anal about inspecting things. I just. Mm -hmm. And I even, you know, started my Red Sea tank with a bunch of Tampa Bay saltwater rock, which you know should be like a guaranteed Aptasia and uh, mantis shrimp hell, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, I did have a mantis shrimp, but no Aptasia. It's weird. Maybe I got something that eats I them. I or... have, I would say, zero Aptasia in two of my tanks. And then kind of uh, manageable amounts of Aptasia in the rest of them. And that's my fault because, uh, you know, building out the studio, I've been acquiring a lot of corals, both wild farmed and used and as much as i try to really go after all of them um it's just it's really hard it's, it's really hard you know my, the biggest complaint back to the pest free thing is man i'll get some uh some 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 frags from 
I've ordered frags from almost everybody this year, but most of them, um, you take that frag and you just leave it alone without any grazers or or dedicated predators. Sure enough, Valonia, Heralgy, and little tiny Aptasia will pop out of the super porous frag plugs. I feel like that's one of the biggest vectors, and it's, I think it's really not fair to consumers that they should expect these things to come out of you know almost they're invisible when you get them and then you just let them sit for a second and everybody's managing it no one's eradicating it and therefore no one's offering this you know pest-free guarantee like leo is um so so yeah aptasia is one of those things like yeah sure i got a few here and there but i'm always i'm always managing it well, with, that, that I wish I could. Question. I have a couple tanks where they're eradicated. I never have to think about it. Yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome in my tanks where I don't have it. If I had one reef tank, oh yeah, for sure, I would have zero aptasia. I think that also boils down to how many coral sellers uh, are actually captively propagating versus being a chop shop, right? I think if you're truly captively propagating, then you can do some bio-isolation over time and, and offer... Bio-isolation? Dude, who do you think these coral farmers are, bro? <laughs> well, that's what <laughs> I'm saying. Not even, they're not even trying is what I'm saying. Well, but I think if you're truly in the business of growing out corals and, and the frags are based off of your growing efforts, that would be easy to do. But if you're just bringing in a bunch of maricultured colonies and chopping them up... You're, how do you how do you avoid the pests at that point, right? Um, but I mean, it's, I feel the same way about fish. But yet, I, I also understand fish are all a lot of them are obviously wild caught, so that becomes tricky. Now you're expecting the dealer to treat these fish and medicate them and and stuff like that. But you know, I feel like we got to figure that out somehow because I think the expectation of spending hundreds of dollars on a fish and knowing that it's probably going to come in with some flukes like flukes are out of control I, from what i hear these days they've gotten worse they've yeah gotten worse and that i mean that bugs me like i don't know like it's let's a product, tie it up right? on the on the amtasia sure. mahanos and then we'll dive into a little bit more of like the fish related problems because we i have a little bit of all these things that we're talking about except mahano dude i haven't seen a mahano in me my neither. tanks in fucking forever um uh bristle yeah. worms i got there's i don't i don't have aptasia but man i seem to be an expert at farming bristle worms and you're gonna bring up my sand bed again i know or i don't really have a sand bed my you have a sand layer i have a layer of of large millimeter substrate <laughs> ornamental sand i have i've I, crushed I, I, coral <laughs> That's that's another thing, dude. Bristleworms. I haven't thought about bristleworms since I was a teenager when people were promoting getting arrow crabs to eat them. Like, it's not. It doesn't even register for me when I have bristleworms. I could run around and like find some bristleworms for you, but that's not even a pest. Like to me, if you have a bunch of bristleworms, yeah, you're probably feeding too much, or you're not cycling your nutrients as well. But what do you think is contributing to your higher population of bristleworms? Uh, probably food. Um a little bit of food, a little bit of just, you know, having that substrate, right? Having places for them to hide um, because I, I certainly have fish that are predators for them. Um, but, you know, I, I don't I don't necessarily think you can eradicate them with a predator if they've got places to hide, right? So, Do you know that um, bristle worms are the most abundant phylum of marine life on a coral reef? Really? 
Oh yeah, I um I don't remember the exact number, but it's something astounding. Like a cubic meter of reef substrate has something like ten thousand bristle worms. Jeez. A three by three by three foot section of reef has something in the order of ten thousand annelids. So not just bristle worms, but all the segmented polychaetes. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes sense and it's like if, if, if you have a condition where you, you actually have a lot of bristle worms like yours, if your tank, if you could snap, Thanos snap your, your, your bristle worms away, what would happen? I don't know. I think, I mean, there's no way for me to prove it, but I think they make a valuable addition to the cleanup crew. That it's, Absolutely. And they elastically scale up and down in population based on Absolutely. your Absolutely. If right? you Thanos snapped all your bristle worms away, you would have so much uneaten food, which would result in a lot more cyanobacteria probably um the decomposition thereof would depress your ph not to mention just create kind of a hyper organic condition um so yeah if you have bristle worms sure take out the big ones you're never going to eradicate them like you know harvest them a little bit um as a form of nutrient export but they are literally helping your reef tank mm-hmm. no yeah, one agree. should ever stress out about seeing even a lot of bristle worms we don't have the same fireworms. Like all the stigma around bristleworms uh, revolves around fireworms, which is a large, mostly Caribbean species that will eat the bejesus out of corals. They will literally eat corals, especially any kind of prized shrooms or zoanthids or fleshy things. And But all of that um, uh, fear surrounding bristleworms is in regards to fireworms back when we used to get a lot of fresh live rock but that is not the case every bristleworm in your tank the most damaging thing it can do is like pop you with some bristles that will be like irritating a little bit itchy for a while you agree yeah i agree um they're a little annoying right when you're pulling out like a bag of meteor carbon or something and you get poked but um you must have a lot more than me. <laughs> no, I, well, I mean, yeah, there are there were times. Uh, right now, obviously, since I just essentially did a reset, I'm pretty good. But yeah, uh, there were there was a moment there where, like, if I would add anything that was like scenty, like frozen food, like a mycid shrimp or something, mm. they, they'd come out of the woodwork, man. They it would was, erupt. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, kind of creepy looking. But, you know, I mean, what was I going to do? Like, start to tear out my reef and do drastic things to try no. to reduce their population? Like, no, I just, okay. No. I just, I, I, man, if I worked in a reef store today and someone came in and said they had bristle worms, I would just look at them with, like, a, a really condescending look and be like, so? And? <laughs> so what? Like, yeah, that's, that's not even a thing, so. All right, here's a I'm, confession for you. Um, oh, okay. And I think maybe this is what drew me back into some of the more softy side is, um, I, I don't mean this in a humble way, a humble brag kind of way, but I did not find, I mean, don't get me wrong, uh, I, I did not find SPS to be particularly challenging. Um, now, granted, I wasn't chasing like absolute coloration with them, I, you know, just lots of growth. Um, and... You know, there were certain acros that were just, I could not keep, like, um, oh, shoot. Uh, there's one from Aura that I just never could keep alive. Uh, I think it starts with a B. Mm, the Pearlberry? Pearlberry. I, I, ah. tried that, I tried a frag of that, like, three times, and it was just like, nope. Um, but um, I got, like, confused about, like, some of the easier corals that were suddenly hard to keep, right? And uh, I... 
I would order like some Superman Rodactus, right? And think, oh man, those are really cool. I'll just stash those in a corner. And they would slowly wither away and uh, die. And we, we've had some discussions about we're, we're much better at providing lots of current and intensity and maybe we're maybe we're not t- tuning our reef so much for those like th- those corals were popular back in the day because we were running maxi jets and vhos but it just was kind of weird to me that like acros seem to do relatively well for me uh with the way i run my tanks but like some of these corals that are deemed easy i started to struggle with and uh, mm-hmm. so that became kind of a frustration with me so yeah um i struggle with some easy to keep corals <laughs> okay all right. I mean, we're having the same issue with, I'm having the same issue with shrooms and I'm trying to like figure out how to tiling back in and, you know, shy of setting up a 1997 style reef tank. <laughs> and maybe um, that's trying, it, right? Maybe that's, I'm point. trying to create some zones where there's just a lot less flow, a lot less light. And, uh, you know, but obviously, you know, one thing that I learned, I'm still learning is like how nutrient limited my reef tanks are. All right. Well, let's, let's stick to some more wrinkles and uh, zits of our reef tank and i think the biggest one that most people struggle with in an average reef tank is going to be ick yeah raise your hand if you got ick in some of your tanks raise your hand if it's a problem no it's not a problem it what's funny is um you know i'm all bare bottom and i really feel like that contributes to my management of ick but that's even like overstating the issue like i don't even see it It, like it'll it'll show up for like two days and it's always the same fish i'm sure you can guess powder blue tangs and regal blue tangs so i got two peninsula tanks and very recently i found a really good nice um used regal blue tang and then another used yellow belly regal blue tang um the yellow belly that went into my five foot uh monopore dominated aquarium no problem the blue one that went to the six foot the water box peninsula oh yeah i mean he's he's like surrounded by like seven other tangs none of them none of them ever showed a spot and he had a little flare up and you know what i did about it nothing yeah. i didn't do nothing i didn't even stress it i'm just like ah eh, you know there's a bare bottom tank it's gonna go away it's gonna go away and you know what i'll see it again once in a while i'll see like two ick spots and it, it just won't be a thing um but you have it tell, tell tell me about what you how you feel about your uh low level simmering ick yeah so i'll keep it short but um i tried to go the ick free tank route so uh i once had a like many long 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 ago uh i'd say 15 years ago uh i finally had a really bad run-in with ick where it just was nuking my fish so i took all my fish out i treated them uh and then i left my tank fallow for 76 plus days Ooh, that's a really long time. Yeah. So, and then I put the fish back in and everything was fine for a while. And then it was time to add a cleanup crew. So I ordered some snails and I mean, and I was, this wasn't like a month later where you could say, oh, some dormant ick. Well, I mean, like a year went by, let's just say a year of just no ick. Life was good. I quarantined every fish that went in. I didn't really... I mean, you know me, I don't buy a lot of corals. I kind of hit a finite mountain, then I just let it grow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so some there was a direct correlation to adding that cleanup crew. And then it was like, well, you know, if you look at the life cycle of Ick, 
uh, there's a dormant phase and you know it could be either in the water inside the snail shell it could be in the on the snail shell itself and as a tomont and uh, then it happened to me again before the macna in fort lauderdale Mm-hmm. And our buddy Vincent came to stay with me, and I was so excited to have a coral farmer from Bali, Indonesia, to come and stay with me. And I was like, "Check out my fallow fishless reef, because I've got all my fish in forty-gallon <laughs> breeder tanks in the basement." And I, it was like, "That's not how you want to show off your reef-keeping skills to a a coral farmer from Indonesia, right?" Um, but he was he was a nice guy, and you know. Um, and so I went fallow again, and um, I this was, uh, again, a separate incident, and I put the fish back in, and uh, again, uh, I added a coral, and just literally after that coral was introduced, which was way later from the fallow period, a headache again, and I thought, well, shoot. So I drew the conclusion that I would have to quarantine, or I would have to have a, a fishless coral invert tank which i do now i actually do but um it's just there's no way around it you know i mean so um now i my new tank that i just set up i noticed my flame angel has a few spots um every other fish is fine and he's eating and the next day the ick is gone and a few days later a few more spots show up but you know he's also kind of pissed off because i added a second flame angel mm. um and they're different sexes, right? One's a male, one's a female. I'm hoping to have a pair. But um, so obviously I added a stressor event, not to mention I moved, ta- I switched tanks, right? I swapped out reef tanks. So um, so now I kind of view quarantining both my corals and fish as keeping the majority of the pests out, but ick mm-hmm. isn't really on my radar. I treat for it in quarantine, right? but I'm more paranoid about things like velvet, right? Uh, yeah. Those, those are, are they will just spread like wildfire and cause some serious damage. I got a, I got some true perculos recently and I did a prophylactic treatment um, of just general antibiotics. And then I added them to the, the long-term quarantine system and one of them wasn't super happy. So he went back in a hospital tank, but I, I do feel like there's two different uh, approaches to ick in a reef tank Mm -hmm. Um, either you have a condition where you're going to have a low level not even infestation just a low level presence of cryptocarrion irritants um, in your reef tank and it really won't even be a problem it's definitely exacerbated by regal blue tangs and powder blue tangs i don't know what it is about those fish those super fine scales man they're just like a breeding ground but um i I feel strongly and i mean dozen years of experience of bare bottom that's like it's i've never really had to remove a a fish that had some kind of ick in a tank that was bare bottom there's no place for the spores to complete the life cycle yes they're always going to find some some spots here and there um, in your rock work or coral or crevice or in your piping but it's just not enough to get to a lethal version i also but if think you ha- yeah go ahead but if you have a, a um a maybe like a more contemporary reef tank setup man please freaking don't try any of these so-called reef safe ick trip meets just skip to the end where you pull your fish out and put them in a tank where you know with some hospitalization and some copper for a few weeks to a month and just just skip to that end part and and you're, you're going to be just fine but um but yeah you know that's that's something that just 
it's probably not discussed enough like especially you know in, in on instagram and social media no one's taking the time to take a photograph of of their tank that has just a tiny bit you know has a few wrinkles well and few, then you uh, see people touting up buying quarantined fish from these vendors that actually there's a lot of vendors now that are starting to sell quarantine fish but then like in the same guy like in another post like introduce like a bunch of corals and I'm like, are those oh. coming quarantine? Because I'd be worried about those introducing ick as well, right? Um, yeah. And so it's like, and then don't get me wrong. I mean, I think, I think like in my case, I'll treat the fish because if I'm going to introduce him into a tank that has low level grade ick in it, I'd rather him be fattened up from quarantine, no gill flukes and intestinal worms. Like, mm. rather just deal with the ick, but he's in top shape for it, right? It's kind of like right. somebody that that's exercises a, a is going to fight a cold better or something. That's a great aspect to managing a low-level you know, ick presence in your reef tank. It really depends on the condition of your fish. If you have a stress fish or fish that are fighting or fish that's getting picked on, it's just not going to be able to uh, deal with, you know, even low levels of ick versus a fish that's really healthy and thick and, and conditioned uh, to eat, you know, aquarium foods. I also think mature tanks, um, <clears throat> I think there's a correlation that ick slowly goes from being an epidemic to fizzling out and maybe popping up when there's like a stressful event. Um, part of it is I don't think it doing like dozens and dozens of life cycles in your tank is sustainable. But I also think that over time as your ch tank matures and your rocks, your substrate, your corals grow in, it, there's, there's a lot of bio, myofauna growing. And, hey, ick is food, man. It's plankton in a sense, right? It's a silly, it's that, swimming around. That's an awesome point because there is probably a lot of competition with ictomonts in your reef system that just has never really been fleshed out and characterized in a reef aquarium setup. I but think that, that probably yeah. uh, uh, really has a lot to a big, a huge effect on whether you're going to have a low level ick presence or like an ick outbreak that you really have to do something about. Yeah. And that's why you got your new tank, new rock, a few corals in there and you have an ick wipeout. But then three years later, you got a bunch of corals grown in and then all of a sudden the ick fizzles, right? And I've heard a lot of uh, folks online say that too, where it's like, hey man, my tank's 10 years old. I can add an ick ridden fish into my tank and it just goes away. And I sort of feel like, well, yeah, there's some immunity, but there's also just, there's some predators, right? There's there's a lot of little mouths that are going to go after mm -hmm. those um, free-swimming, ciliated parasites. So I think the last um, blemish, common blemish of reef tanks is um, what I would say are called are flatworms. Hmm. You know, and there's, I would kind of, you know, divide these into two types. You got your red planaria that might grow around and... And man, I've I've dealt with them in the past and tried to treat for them. And two things: one, I usually did some harm by forgetting one little nano fish that I forgot to pull out, and it died. No matter what flatworm exit says, like it's it's fish killing poison. And no matter what, it would always come back, right? You're supposed to remove it, do a little flatworm exit, add some aeration. But unless I pulled out every single nano fish, um, it would always kind of kill some fish. But then it would also always come back. So I don't, I don't even sweat red planaria. That's one of those things where you are the best grazer <laughs> on that thing. What are your experiences with red planaria? 
I only had it once in a uh, 40-gallon reef, uh, and I, I made the bonehead mistake of treating it with flatworm exit, and I killed the coolest fish I have ever owned in my entire life in this oh, hobby. No. What was it? Bluefin lionfish. <gasps> oh, God, I remember when you had that, bro. Oh, what is that? Uh, Parapteros? Hetero, hetero, something like that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I remember when you first got that fish. Scott Michael had like, you know, kind of deified that fish for us in a couple of articles. And you're like, all right, this is a really cool lionfish. I remember when that happened. But yeah, if you have red planaria, it kind of falls under cyanobacteria. Yes, it will build up. Yes, it's potentially toxic and very unsightly. But besides like manual removal it's really not that big of a deal it's, it's dude no no one's reef tanks has ever crashed from having valonia and red planaria and aptasia and derbesia and all these things but what causes a tank crash is people dealing with it mm -hmm. or trying to eradicate it right that is that this is, this is one of those cases where the cure is worse than the disease for sure like a hundred percent yeah, I agree. I, di I did everything right. I siphoned out as many as I could. And I, you know, I should have removed the fish. But yeah, that was, ugh. I should have just lived with it, you know, and done exactly what you said. Uh, so, but I, I haven't run into those in a while. I haven't dealt with acro eating flatworms, uh, really. Uh, if I did have them, I wouldn't have known it. Well, I think we'll, we'll save one for, for coral pests, but I guess the last kind of non-critical blemish is, I, again, the last couple of years, I've acquired a lot of coral to try to fill up the studio, and, uh, you know, I got some, some benign flatworms that build up on my euphelia, and they might grow a little bit on my soft corals, and some of my candy corals and certain LPS. Man, again, once again, like I could, I could do flatworm exit and know all the side effects that entails, or just kind of blast them off. And I have not found any fish to really be effective. I have them in tank full of spring ride damsel. I got a school of eight spring ride damsels in one tank. They, they could care less. Why would they eat, you know, nasty looking flatworms when I feed them really good food all the time? <laughs> you know, but those, these, these are all things that that social mediaites go out of their way to exclude from how they present their reef tanks and their corals and their fish. And uh, there, it's just not nearly talked enough, uh, talked about in nearly enough that it's just most of these things are a non-issue. Yeah, I mean, some of the tanks that I should probably stop following, but they're beautiful reef tanks. You know, I look at like one of them has, I don't know, like a dozen tanks in it. And it's gorgeous, right? But I've never seen a picture of a quarantine system. And I'm like, you've got to have ick in that thing, you know? But uh, it's being managed, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's... it's um, you, know, you know what? Here's a challenge to the, the viewers and listeners right now. I challenge someone to start up a Reef Aquarium account just showing off coral diseases, Reef Aquarium pests, and, you know, sick fish. <laughs> just or, keep, or like a just hashtag keep it on Instagram that is like, hey, let's all share our, our underbellies, you know? Like, oh, let's, let's come up with it right now. Um, reef aquarium blemishes. Yeah, there you uh, go. Reef, reef flaws. Yeah. Hashtag reefing uh, drawbacks. I don't know. Somebody come up with it because like I would really follow that because 
I really feel, especially with the newer reefers who haven't been doing it for that long, they are prom primarily consuming social content, which is all very curated and uh, you know highly optimized with flattering colors and conditions. And man, to be honest, like the best thing I can tell people to, to increase the enjoyment of your reef tank is um, stop. Facebook. Don't don't follow any Facebook accounts. Don't follow any Instagram accounts. Um, it's it's a lot harder to really skew things in video. So I think video is by definition just a lot harder to fib. Um, but yeah, if you want to feel better about your reef tanks, just stop looking at these highly curated uh, images of corals and reef tanks that. Um, will just make you feel bad about what your tank looks like um, exactly like uh, beauty magazine covers uh, you know currently and stretching back to the 90s yeah I think it's remember it's about the journey and if this re if 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 becoming a reef keeping expert meant you never had to deal with algae problems or parasites cyano ever again then it'd be a pretty boring hobby, right? But but if you have somebody who wrote a book or whatever that you worship, like odds are they're still they're still dealing with cyano on occasion, right? Uh, I have a little bit of everything we talked about. Yeah, I don't have mahanos, I don't have hermitids, but I got a little bit of ick here and there. I got a little bit of cyano here and there. I got a little bit of valonia kicking around, and you know, if you look at my reef tank, it's not going to be like in your face, but I can point it out. And just because you have it, it's it really doesn't affect the long-term success and enjoyment of your reef tank unless think, you unless you make it. I, well, and one way to look at it is like I think that's why I'm still in this hobby, right? I go through these weird moments where I'll set up a freshwater planet tank. And I don't, I don't go crazy with it, but I, I literally do hit a level of homeostasis with it where then I'm like, all right, well, there's nothing to do. Like the plants are growing. I got to trim them. The fish are fine. And I get bored, right? Whereas with reef keeping, there's always like a little battle I got to deal with. You know, I, I, I still have to get in there every once in a while and tinker. And that's what keeps it fun. Um, mm -hmm. So, so oh, it is so satisfying to overcome some of these things. Oh, yeah. You know, when you go from having an aquarium with so much aptasia that you can't, you don't feel comfortable putting corals anywhere because you know they're going to get stung to the point where like you can barely even find any, man, that is such an awesome triumph. And that really makes it rewarding. I'm not trying to glorify these reef aquarium no. problems and issues, but you're, you're totally, totally right. If you have um, a laboratory grade uh, samples of freshwater plants or uh, aquarium corals, which don't exist, um, it would just be uh, a little bit so turnkey that you don't have that um triumphant feeling when you when you uh, tr uh overcome some of these challenges so i just i just really want you know what i want i want not only the people who are listening and watching reef therapy to know that there is no such thing yet <laughs> as a flawless reef aquarium we all have um crow's feet and wrinkles and zits and their aquarium equivalents um and yeah it's just just not that's just not that's not true mm -hmm. all right you want me to, can i pull out can i pull out a 20 year old memento for you oh okay yeah show me oh wait you were there 
No, I wasn't there. You were there. Yeah, I was. So I'm, for those of you just listening on the podcast, I'm holding up the entire program for Magna 2000. I was working in Atlanta. And Did this I is bring all that, that, back to you? that Mark brought back <laughs> to me for Magna 12, the nice. 12th annual Marine Aquarium Conference of, of uh, North America. I'm going to look over the uh, speakers. Um, we've got Walter Aidey, uh, Bruce I Carlson. I watched that talk. I watched that man. talk. Yeah. Yehuda Benyahu. Benyahu. He's a soft coral expert. Kelly Jedlicki. Um, all I remember is her like grinding teeth on pufferfish. Mike Paletta is still around. Peter Wilkins, RIP. Martin Moe, the godfather. Um, Cindy Hunter, Dr. Ron Schimek, Ruth Francis Lloyd, and Vincent Dufour. Um, so yeah, this is the entire program. It's like a little, it's like a little booklet, but it's, it just kind of shows just how far the reef aquarium hobby has come. And in the, in the back, you can, um, you can see the schedule, you can see travel information, you can reserve like conference and banquet tickets. And that's back in the day where if you lined up at the end of the show, you might get some VHS tapes of some talks. And later on that progressed to uh, um, DVDs of certain presentations. But yeah, you know, now it's, it's magnet talks are still online. I just thought it'd be a fun little memento because we talked about that, I think on retherapy session, the pilot yeah. to session number zero and i was looking for this and i found it that it's funny you bring up the 80 talk because in the in the context of this discussion we had his talk brought up i remember this because it kind of blew my mind to be honest 20 years ago bro yeah he talked about how uh well everybody you know everybody's probably seen in documentaries damselfish how they farm turf algae by essentially being very territorial and chasing the tangs and the crabs and away right so that they can farm turf algae so a good example of if you remove the algae grazers what happens on a natural reef turf algae and he, he talked about an experiment where they sectioned off a reef and basically created a barrier to keep herbivores out and guess what took over the corals algae yeah um, but it, anyway uh yeah, that I was such a fanboy at that that I remember walking up to Peter Wilkins with my little Macna thing, and I asked for his signature. For for those who don't know who Peter Wilkins is, like he's like the godfather of reef keeping. He inspired a lot of the people who inspired us. Yeah, yeah. Simply put, um, anything else you want to say about uh, our imperfect reef tanks? No, I just I hope I hope people get what we were trying to say is that uh, you know it's yeah it's I think what I, I forgot to mention is like I don't want I just I want people who are listening and watching not only to realize that there is almost no such thing as a flawless reef tanks I want them to kind of spread the word and 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 that, more than anything more than sharing your you know reef therapy on your favorite podcatcher or sharing sessions of reef therapy on youtube i want you to spread the gospel that reef tanks are inherently imperfect you're always going to have some low level of algae or unwanted critters or you know low level low levels of certain fish diseases and you should not overreact and you should not think less of your reef tank because of it. I have virtually all of these things present in my reef tanks. My corals are fine. My fish are fine. They're, they're very well represented. And, um, you know, it, just things like bristle worms and uh, a little aptasia here and there. It's just, it's just not the end of the world. 
Well, and it's cool if you really look at it from a positive angle, right? You introduce all of these organisms, even organisms that you can't even see with the human eye that are going to hitchhike, right? And then you provide reef-like, I say that carefully, but you know, you provide conditions of reef-like situation with flow and the right elements and, you know, uh, your water chemistry is good, your lighting's great, and then these things are going to compete and they're going to turf it out, right? They're going to be like they're they're all it's that's that's what nature does and it's fascinating and then you have to kind of be the one that tweaks it in the direction that is aesthetically pleasing to you or or the outcome that you're looking for and that's not always going to go your way (laughs) yeah for sure you know some people want to have a flawless experience and for sure you know absolutely i would love it if i never experienced some of these things but overcoming these challenges is part of what makes the reef aquarium hobby so rewarding agreed yeah i think that's a good point good spot to uh end the session of uh, reef therapy man i can't believe we've had 13 sessions so far although this is number 12 because i'm counting the pilot i uh, just want to remind everybody to uh, make sure to subscribe follow uh like us on your favorite podcatchers and subscribe um to the youtube channel which will eventually get moved to its own reef therapy dedicated youtube channel we'll share clips i think that's a hot thing that everybody is doing these days um so mark thanks for participating in this therapeutic session of reef aquarium talk and uh we'll do it up again next week i feel so much better that i got some of that out it feels so good right it feels so good to be like yo (laughs) our reef tanks aren't perfect no matter what you see and i could see ourselves revisiting this topic uh you know down the road sounds good man all right mark i'll talk to you soon yeah man bye guys